Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm thrilled to be here with Jeffrey West, who is a man after my own heart. He's a physicist, a biologist, and a global thinker. Uh, he's written a book called Scale, which looks at organisms and cities and businesses and derives fundamental principles that actually work uh, really well between these different entities. And he is a distinguished professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you, Zoha. Thanks for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. One of the things that you write about is the distinction between entities that grow superlinearly and entities that grow sublinearly. Um, entities which grow superlinearly, for example, cities, um, can grow forever. Entities which grow sublinearly um, eventually reach a plateau and um, a death, ultimately, because the cost of maintenance exceeds the ability to consume the energy necessary to keep going. So with that distinction in mind, um, where does the sense of mortality come from that human beings experience? In other words, lots of things come to an end, but not all things are aware of their end or are even motivated by their sense of an end. And in Heidegger's uh, Being in Time, he makes an ontological distinction between a human experience of death and an animal experience of death. He calls the animal experience demise or perishing, and the human being's experience is mortality because we care about the fact that we are finite. So from a biological or physicist point of view, um, what do you think about the reflexive aspect of our relationship to mortality? Yeah, what a wonderful question we could spend, <laughs> not just the rest of the time <laughs> this morning on that, but maybe the rest of the day. Um, no, it's a fantastic topic, of course, a fantastic question and one that I've pondered. Um, and I, on one level, I have a kind of simplistic um, understanding of it and another something maybe uh, more profound, I suppose. But the simplistic is pretty much what, I mean, I agree, of course, with Heidegger. I agree, you know, there is this marked distinction. And in fact, um, of course, it opens up the whole question of consciousness. I mean, we, I mean, the, the, the fundamental thing distinguishing us from the rest of the biosphere is that we seem to be the, the, the major source, the major folk locus of um, consciousness in the, on the planet and possibly in the universe. Um, and uh, one of the, I mean, and it's marvelous. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, <laughs> sort of <laughs> an individual level in many ways, marvelous. Uh, but, um, and part of the responsibility of that consciousness is it brings to the, to the planet and therefore to the universe a sense, first of all, of ethics and morality. That is, we care despite all the terrible things we might do, we care. I would venture to guess that, you know, none of the rest of the universe, the physical universe, and probably none of the rest of the biosphere gives a damn about anything that's happening right in the future. They only care about what's happening right now, basically. I mean, I'm being a bit simplistic. And part of that is a part of the burden of our consciousness is that we are probably the only organism that's truly conscious of our own death, um, at least ultimately. I mean, 
that changes with age, as I can fully attest to. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, from a very early age, one's conscious of death. But, um, you know, maybe even at, at your age, you know, it's sort of more intellectual than actual. Whereas at my age, <laughs> you know, I'm definitely the Grim Reaper is right there on my shoulder kind of thing. Um, and I think it's very profound, I, uh, obviously, that sense of our finite mortality. That uh, and um, and I think it has, uh, you know, it, it probably uh, runs through almost, you know, everything we do, both culturally and um, even even in some curious way in our sort of daily actions, without us quite realizing it, that we are finite that uh, there is an end and uh, that has all kinds of extraordinary consequences. Uh, but anyway, we can explore those if that's what you, if that's the direction you want to go. I'd love to get more into it, but um, maybe before we, we go down the rabbit hole of mortality, um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts as a physicist on why is the universe so vast and yet to our empirical knowledge, we're the only ones with this sense of, finitude, this anxiety and agony? I mean, as a physicist, you know, it's that, uh, was it family or whatever, you know, we're, we're the rest of us kind of thing. Uh, because um, on a purely statistical basis, there must surely be life elsewhere. Um, and uh, if there's life elsewhere, it's not unlikely that it too has developed some form of consciousness. So, um, you know, I don't know, you know, it's people, various people who try to make, you know, wild guesstimates of what those probabilities are and so on and so forth. Um, so there's that question. So I would say from a physicist's viewpoint, it's very unlikely that there's um, not life elsewhere. And it's therefore very unlikely that there's not multicellular kinds of life and therefore some form of consciousness. On the other hand, you know, in terms of, um, I, I'm not sure if that makes a difference in the sense that, <laughs> so, so if there is that, you know, we still got to be who we are and we are this, you know, extraordinary focal point of consciousness and therefore of moral responsibility and of agency, which, uh, and so, um, you know, so it, it's hard to separate in the way you put the question, sort of as a physicist. So there's a physicist answer, which I gave, and then there's sort of a, you know, me as a human being, just a human, ho hopefully reasonably intelligent human being trying to respond to what, what that might mean and what that means in terms of action. So a lot of times when we think of scale, we think of scaling up in terms of size, um, you know, a mouse versus a bear. Consciousness is just one of those strange things, though, where you can kind of conceive of it in terms of size, like more synapses. But it's also this mystery because it is like lives somewhere physically, but is not really physical. Where is it? So it's like how just the, the statement you made that if there's life, then it would be conscious. But it still leaves me with this enigma of how do we go from life to intelligence to the assumption that intelligence is caring and that implicit in this care would be this uh, reflexivity 
to care for one's own being, to have such a thing as what Hegel called following the ancient thumas, a sense of righteous rage that I'm entitled to something. And if you don't give it to me, then I'm going to fight you, <laughs> which you could argue is the basis for all modern politics. <laughs> yes. Well, you could also uh, argue that it's sort of a very primitive, uh, highly oversupplied version of natural selection. I mean, you know, animals fight. I mean, organisms fight in, in quotes, fight being um, I'm generalizing the word, but, you know, there's the survival of the fittest and, uh, and so on. And the, and the, um, you know, the competition for resources and so on. And that's sort of implicit. In, and we carry that with us, of course, whether we like it or not. And uh, But the indignity, the indignity that we suffer when our humanity isn't recognized, it seems to be a leap beyond just the fighting for social dominance or uh, resources. It's almost, it's anti-utilitarian in a certain way. Like if you think about identity politics, for the past 300 years, so much war has been waged, not necessarily over what's in our material interests, but just over our sense of, I want to be seen as a human being. Yes, that's, uh, yes. And uh, I suppose also um, that goes along with, um, on the one hand, in more modern times, the rise of individuality in the sense of the, you know, the importance of the individual. and uh, and earlier on the, the rise of the importance of the individual state or individual tribe, and as you say, identity politics in modern phraseology, but uh, that sense of the collective and acting as a certain kind of super organism almost, and therefore survival of the fittest of that. And that has been a dominant, that's a dominant theme, of course, throughout the history of, well, the history of the biosphere, but in particular, the history of socioeconomic human beings. AI can do a lot of impressive things, but to my perception thus far, it doesn't have this reflexivity. Um, Sam Altman doesn't want us to personify it. Um, that would lead to, you know, ethical problems. But um, at the same time, there's talk of super intelligence and AGI. Do you think AGI is attainable and if it is, or regardless of if it is, would it necessarily have to have those Heideggerian features like care for its own being, a sense of identity, a sense of mission, and also um, a sense of mortality to qualify as intelligent? Yeah, it was another big, <laughs> huge questions. And of course, this is really speculative, obviously. I mean, one of the interesting things, of course, about AI, by the way, you mentioned Sam Altman, but all the kind of founders and gurus, um, needless to say, are all speculating. I mean, it's not, it's sort of an interesting area because, you know, they may be the world's experts and they've been extraordinarily clever and creative in being able to make this thing, make things like ChatGBT and so forth, uh, pretty extraordinary in my opinion. Um, and AI is clearly extremely powerful. Um, but, um, you know, it doesn't matter how much you understand it. It's incredibly hard to, you know, to, to have a, you know, scientific view of what its future will be. I, who am not an expert in it, so it's, I'm even, I mean, I'm super speculative. I'm, uh, I remain skeptical. I mean, I'm a great, I mean, AI is fantastic. 
I've been incredibly impressed by ChatGPT, despite all its forthcoming. I mean, the, actually, the interesting thing about ChatGPT that I found really disappointing, really disappointing, was that it was uh, just like us. <laughs> no, I mean, it wasn't new. I mean, it was especially because it cheated. You know, it told lies. It made things up. It was, you know, as people say, you know, it's like a smart, you know, sophomore or whatever. Puts in a bunch of references, making them up, thinking that, the, the you know, no one's actually going to check on these, obviously, which they wouldn't. And, in, in, you know, if it had been done by human beings with professors, they don't check on the actual references. But, you know, this, so this, this goddamn program, uh, this algorithm or set of algorithms, picked that up from us. And so in answer to your question, the other thing is that the whole question, would it develop moral and ethical values? Um, I would speculate at the moment, the answer is, believe it or not, yes, if, it, if those are possible. Because, I mean, after all, it is nothing but us. I mean, all its data comes from averaging over us, um, you know, in, in some form. We don't know exactly what the algorithm is, but it does some weighting of all the stuff that's out there. And, of course, that is just us. So, you know, if we cheat and lie, it will cheat and lie and knows that's says that's fine. If it thinks that, you know, killing people uh, in wars is bad or murdering people is bad, if we think that, it will think that. So now it may and it will evolve, and that makes it even more, I don't know. But I have no, but I, I must say, I was really, I found totally bizarre that soon after it hit the headlines a few months ago, there was all this stuff about, which had already been in the news anyway, you know, it's going to take over. It's going to, you know, get rid of us, take over the world and so on, which I thought was completely nuts. I mean, you know, it, it's going to have a profound effect. There's no question. And it's fantastic. And it is potentially dangerous uh, in some forms, but not for that. It's dangerous because of what we already have. Namely, it may exaggerate more and more the, the, the fake news aspect of its uh, existence. And that is us. We've been doing fake news since, uh, well, you're a rabbi, maybe since the Bible was written. <laughs> um, I saw an interview in Wired magazine with Christopher Nolan. He just came out with a new film, Oppenheimer. And there was some analogy he was drawing between sort of the creators of AI and the creators of the atom bomb. I don't know if, do you agree with that sort of analogy or do you think? Uh, I agree with it. I haven't given a lot of thought to it, but it did occur to me very early on that there is a kind of analogy in the sense that you've created something that is clearly enormously powerful and could be highly destructive potentially. Um, and we need to come to terms with it. Um, and you could use all those words about AI and therefore, there's enormous social and political responsibility in handling it. And uh, you would have hoped, and maybe Christopher Nolan probably even said this, and I, you know, you would have hoped we might have learned some lessons uh, from the Manhattan Project and so forth. Which, by the way, if I turn to my left and I look out my window, I can see exactly where that bomb was developed. So 30 miles across the 
the Rio Grande Valley, as we speak. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, in a way, um, I mean, in, you could argue, uh, despite all the fears, that um, we have controlled nuclear weapons. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they haven't been used since the the, the, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, uh, and those were atomic weapons anyway, but we haven't used nuclear weapons. And um, it has limited warfare. So, you know, I'm not arguing that this is the best way of doing it. But remarkably, despite all one's fears and despite the special, you know, the, the, the existence of, um, you know, autocrats and dictators and so on at various times, and we're seeing them come back again, somehow we got through that without using these weapons, even though, you know, you could, you, you could paint a scenario in the near future where these might be used. But it has been. So even though in some ways maybe we haven't quite learned the lesson of that, there probably are lessons to be learned and ways of doing it that we could use. For example, you know, one of the things that was done very early on, which I felt was fantastic, um, and I think Oppenheimer was the initiator of it, was getting the labs like Los Alamos and so on, the development and the development of the bomb out of the hands of the military um, and put it under civilian control. That's where the Atomic Energy Commission came and making Los Alamos, for example, part of the University of California so that the government didn't have direct control. And that that was pretty foresightful of, uh, of Oppenheimer, if it was, I, I believe it was Oppenheimer who started it. But anyway, and that the government agreed. I mean, the, I guess the Truman administration agreed to that. And so, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily the model to follow, but it does show that, you know, there was some foresight in this. Much like uh, in Lord of the Rings, maybe uh, you, you need to create create the ring to preempt uh, evil, but then you need to throw the ring away lest you become corrupted by it. Um, going back to something you said, AI is us, or you know, um, disappointingly so. You got me thinking um, along. That's a slightly sarcastic comment, by the sure. way. This is a this is a gnostic uh, speculative heresy. I'm going to offer of sorts, um, but. Um, the Bible says that human beings were created in the divine image. And it occurs to me, if we go with the AI analogy, were human beings trained on God? And was God disappointed um, that human beings were, in a sense, just regurgitations of divine data when the purpose of creation was something other than God's self? But what God got in return was just all of God's own qualities reflected back to him. Well, another big one. Well, you know, I'm sort of in my philosophical views are close. Uh, you know, I'm a physicist. I sort of there's a I, I have recognized as many others have when you do, especially do theoretical physics, and of course I've applied it now to other things and things sort of sort of speak out there in the world around me. And uh, there is, you know, and I get a, for want of a better word, a spiritual feeling about that. I mean, there's something, it doesn't, it's not, nece not necessarily to do with what you might call God, but it's spiritual, some sense of being, again, for want of a better phrase, sort of at one with the universe, that or, or I'm a tool being used by the universe or something. So that brings me to sort of a Spinoza view, 
of nature and God and so on. And I sort of sit there and I think it's sort of Einsteinian and so on. It's not Newtonian, you know, it's not. Newtonian is definitely more in line a little bit. I'm not sure if you, you know, with, with sort of Old Testament, you know, God, there he is and so on. I don't, I think that it's more a little bit what you're, I, if I understood what you were saying, that um, we are, so going back to the beginning of our conversation about consciousness, you know, you could ask the question, sort of, why are we here? Which is sort of implied in what you said. And I would, um, I don't know if that has any meaning, uh, what I have concluded is one is narcissistic, and that is to love. So I consider that narcissistic. That is, we love each other, and that's there's nothing more profound and important than that in terms of one's individual kind of behavior. But there's something bigger than that, actually. And that goes more to your point, and that we're here in order to understand the universe. If you want to give an anthropocentric view, that that's what this is all about. And this whole evolution, evolutionary process that has led to human beings with brains that develop consciousness, and therefore the ability to, quote, understand, to discover mathematics, to discover you know, ways of investigating, to, to argue rationally, um, and so on, um, uh, is why we're here. And that is, this is the way for the universe to know itself, because without us, it does not know itself, or as could be put, you know, this is the way an electron knows it's an electron, and so on. And I think that gives me great satisfaction, even though I'm not, you know, I'm not quite sure what that means, and I'm certainly not the first person to think of that. But it's hard not to come to that if you, you know, if you're more philosophically inclined, and you're a, a scientist, and in particular, if you're a physicist, because I think physics has this marvelous, because of the power of mathematics, to have, to to, to see the power, you know, the the mathematics seems to be the language of the universe. I mean, it's not. Latin or Hebrew or English or Hindi. It seems to be mathematics. Now, maybe, you know, how far is that? Can you take that? I have no idea. Maybe we've reached the limits. But so when you do that, you get, it's hard not to come to these, you know, as I said, if you're philosophically inclined, not to come to some conclusion that that's what it's actually all about, ultimately. I could, I could agree that it's Mathematics is one of the languages that it speaks, but maybe it speaks multiple languages. Yes, I think that's... Because mathematics is also notation. You could argue that the equal side is as much love poetry as it is mathematics. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. <laughs> but you could still ask the question within this sort of more simplistic view of what mathematics is, just purely as a language, purely as a machine for understanding purely in that framework, um, which it, and for which and, and it was developed for understanding the physical universe, mm -hmm. geometry being maybe the beginning, um, how far can you push, you know, is it even conceivable that, you know, emotions and love and consciousness and so on somehow have a mathematical representation in, the, in, this, in this more limited sense? I think, I think it's possible that they do. 
um, much as like in the book Flatland, you can sort of transcribe three dimensions into two dimensions. But then to the point of why are we here, we're not just here as computers to compute and put out um, math equations where we experience. And so like, if you ask a religious person, why are you here? They might say to be a witness. Like I, I once heard this religious Christian say that um, his mom told him when he goes to heaven, God, God is going to ask him like, what did you experience? Like, tell me everything as if almost man is God's eyes and ears and God has the mathematical view or the spinazistic view, but has created these avatars to go and kind of feel and breathe and experience the drama and incarnate um, and return. And then maybe there's some kind of cycle there between the abstraction and then, then the agony and ecstasy. <laughs> yeah, you just reminded me, I carry around in my wallet, which I've looked at for ages, a little saying from some Hasidic rabbi whose name you would know. This is going to heaven when he goes to meet the maker, mm. he dies. Oh, Susha. When he's asked um, and, he, and um, he, he's worried about, why wasn't I more like Moses? Mm-hmm. And whatever his name was. And, yeah. and God says, Susha. Why weren't you more like you? Know, you, you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I think is just wonderful. And I carry that. I go, yes, why am I not more Jeffrey West? Exactly. I think that's that's the rejoinder in a way to the Spinoza view. It's not that it's wrong, but that it's it sort of misses the specificity of the unique yeah, that's, experience. That's, true. that's why I like this. It's a counterpoint. But I don't see them as in opposition. Yeah. I don't think they're in opposition at the theoretical level, but experientially, like even you sort of said, well, I could answer as a physicist or I could answer as a human being, yeah. I might say. No, no, it's sort of that. Uh, but I do think I'm more and more convinced, though, of the role of the collective over the role of the individual. And this is the counter to that, as I say. That's the counter to it. So I keep it with me. Gotcha. Well, actually, I mean, speaking of, it seems like the ancients were much more in tune with the power of the collective and that modernity yes. is, in some sense, defined by the emphasis of the individual. So, yes, no, it's a, it's a much more modern view. The, I mean, very modern, in fact, the, the, the role of the individual. We, because we're modern and biased in that direction, we ascribe a lot of moral progress to the discovery of individuality. Um, how do you square this sort of moral emphasis on the individual as an agent and also as an equal of other individuals with the more ancient view of the individual as kind of just a node within a network or a tribe or in some sense the, the job of the individual is to perform their role for society well and not to question it, not to reinvent it? Yeah, well, I don't go that last part. <laughs> I don't go along with. I go along with... It should be, should be your role in society as, or whatever the collective is that you're part of. That's crucially important and certainly in the biggest sense part of humanity. And therefore this quest or this, this um, and a burden of understanding, you know, somehow. Um, otherwise it makes no sense. Otherwise it's all pointless. That's, I guess that's the, my, the point I think I didn't say. Otherwise it feels all pointless to me. You know, it's uh, it's just a great big. I mean, it always feels like a cosmic joke. Uh, otherwise, 
Um, so, uh, you know, I need that uh, sort of that's uh, important for me. Uh, and that's why the love of the individual, that's that, again, that tension and juxtaposition love, which is very individualistic. Well, it can be, of course, collective, but I think of it more individualistic versus this task mm. of the collective we're here to understand, we're the, to, for the universe to understand itself. That resonates with this distinction in Judaism between um, obligations which are bein adam which are between me and my fellow person, and uh, obligations which are bein adam makom, between me and the divine. So, right, you have... Oh, that's similar. Yeah, that's similar. You got to pay your taxes, you know, don't steal, etc. Uh, <laughs> but if you're a theologian or a philosopher, maybe all of that is just kind of feeding the meter and then ethics is feeding ethics is feeding the meter and then you you can devote your time and energy to where it really matters which is you know understanding god in the universe like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter whether sort of the discovery of, of a something in theoretical physics has cash value for society like it's just intrinsically worth doing uh maybe the highest calling well i'd like to that's what i i sort of believe that but i don't act on it why don't you act on it well, I do act. I mean, I do, oh. but I don't do enough of it kind of thing. Mm. You know, I mean, I watch videos and I waste my time on all kinds of rubbish. I'm, <laughs> a, I'm a passionate uh, lover of football, I mean, soccer and so on, all of which are pointless in a way. On the other hand, they play a role, of course, all those things. They, they play a role in binding you to society, which which is part of that, that other basket. But there is also the con the counter view espoused by, let's say, uh, Martin Buber or Le Levinas, um, that would say the the ethical is the point, the love of fellow person is the point, and the quest for knowledge, or for the divine, is only revealed to and through and on the basis of that. So that's kind of like an, a a debate within philosophy. Like Maimonides would say. The, and, and Plato probably as well would say that um, there is a universal love that is the highest love and that love is disinterested. It's not based on what do I get out of it. It isn't narcissistic. It's like uh, you just pursue the abstraction. And then I think there's the more relational approach, which is that everything matters only because it benefits me and my friends or me and my tribe, even the, even the pursuit of theory it's fodder for banter. It's fodder for signaling to get a mate or whatever it is. And if I didn't have that motive, then I would never even do it in the first place. I kind of find, I find the Maimonidean perspective more, more beautiful. The idea that there's just this indifferent knowledge out there and some of us are chosen or privileged enough to get to see it. And uh, you don't have to share it with everyone and not everyone's interested, but sort of haters going to hate and don't worry that, most of humanity is disinterested for one reason or another. It could be psychology. It could be like sociology. It could be economics. But like that doesn't mean this isn't the highest station. I'm a snob. <laughs> no, I agree with that, and I do, and and I do agree that uh, you know I'm I'm a definitely, you know, there is objective knowledge. You know, there is something there. This is not sort of all arbitrary and capricious. And, uh, you know, I take a definitely a, um, there may well be other languages or other modes, 
but there's still an objectivity to the depth of understanding. So I take a, I've become more and more, I never used to think this way. It took me a long time to get to it, to this kind of anthropocentric, it's really an anthropocentric view. Um, and uh, it, it, it's what, I, I, I guess, many religions, uh, as I think about it, probably have. I mean, because most religions are very human, I mean, a relationship to God, of course, but humans play a very special role in the universe. Yeah, I think it's a tension within religion, kind of how much you emphasize the self-centeredness and how much you emphasize the God-centeredness. And then you could sort of trace that dialectic out between religious extremists uh, who, who pine after revelation and then maybe what you call more like reformists or um, civil service type folks who almost think of religion as just a distribution system for ethics or values or something like that. <laughs> yes. So I saw Nassim Taleb blurbed your book. Where do you think you most disagree with him um, in terms of either emphasis or actuality? Specifically, I was thinking about like just the idea of um, laws that determine all kinds of things across discipline, but then his emphasis being on almost exceptions or like tail events. And a lot of your examples seem to be the opposite of like, in other words, they operate within what he would call mediocristan. So how do you think about extremistan or outliers? Oh, no, I'm, I'm in, you know, I, I don't think there's any disagreement whatsoever. Um, as you said, you've said it uh, very succinctly. I mean, I'm interested in, um, first of all, I'm uh, being a physicist. I'm interested in the underlying principles. What are the parsimonious principles which somehow determine the gross features of everything around us, the kind of coarse-grained structure? Because everything looks, you know, I look out, I mean, I had, as I said, I look across the Rio Grande Valley, everything looks sort of arbitrary, as I say, everything looks totally arbitrary. And then, you know, the trees and the houses and the roads and things look like, you know, just a great big mess that's sort of just uh, randomly um, evolved. And, um, in, you know, and in fact, <laughs> what you discover, that's just not true. If you look in this kind of coarse-grained way. So, you know, you could think of it as some kind of averaging and so forth, some kind of statistical averaging. But remarkably, and that's what my book was about, and that's what scaling is about, is that if you look through the right lens, um, there's an extraordinary commonality, regularity, and systematic behavior across, you know, all of life, including all of socioeconomic life. Um, just as we know there is, you know, across the physical universe, um, the laws are different in their nature. And this is where I'm coming to Nassim. Uh, they're different in their nature in the sense that, you know, the, the concept, the kind of Newtonian concept of immutable laws in physics. These are laws that are, you know, like the Ten Commandments, I guess, you know, never to be transgressed. <laughs> Uh, they're more than the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments you can transgress, but the laws of physics you cannot transgress even if you want to. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, that was great. Uh, I want to see the physicists model the universe in such a way where you can violate the laws of physics, but you're punished for doing so. Yes, that would be very <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. You know, let's try F equals M A squared and see what happens. Anyway, um, so, uh, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm very, that's what I'm primarily interested in is this sort of unification, kind of this grand unification and unity of things, which by the way, just tangentially, I sort of think of in a kind of spiritual way. I mean, that is the, you know, um, the unity. And I've often wondered about uh, that quest. It's, it's, it's a kind of mixture of some platonic ideal and the idea of one God. I mean, you know, unity, this idea that there should be some unifying simple principles. I mean, simple in the sense that they can be, they're very parsimonious. Um, anyway, so that's what I'm interested in. And of course, um, the, the physical universe, roughly speaking, um, satisfies those physical laws exactly, so to speak. You know, we can predict the motion of satellites and the planets to ex extraordinary accuracy so that you and I can have this conversation, for example, and, and so on and so forth. Um, now, the laws that I'm in, I have been involved in, try to um, discover, to understand, to uh, and enunciate principles concerning them, are laws that are more statistical in nature. And they are to do with systems that are, um, as far as we know, maybe there are other places in the universe, are ones that only seem to be on this planet, basically, namely the messiness of the world around us. And, um, uh, and, and those laws um, have a new feature to them, which is to do with adaptation and evolution. That is, they're continually changing. And so at least the system is changing. And the question is, are there underlying laws that are invariant to that, that stay the same, even though, you know, things are changing. Society changes, people grow up, people die. Yet are there invariants there that stay the same? And that's what I'm interested in. And that's what I... I believe some of which I've discovered. So, and that's very satisfying. But um, unlike those laws of physics, there's slop in these laws. You know, there's statistical variation and uh, there's outliers and so on. And that's what Nassim is interested in. And those are very important. The question is, and in fact, one of the fundamental questions of, of my approach is, yes, let's get this baseline. You know, that is this sort of, baseline, which is based on fundamental principles, so we know where the, their origin, what their origin is, mechanistically. Um, and then the question which is begging is how much can you violate them? <laughs> Unlike, you can't violate quantum mechanics, apparently, and you can't violate theory of relativity, but you can certainly violate these scaling laws. Um, and, um, but you can't violate them very much. Otherwise, they wouldn't be laws. Um, and a fundamental question is how much can you violate them and how big an outlier can you be? And it's not very much, but that's the kind of thing that Nassim is interested in, as is, um, what's his name, um, Malcolm Gladwell, another one that's interested in these odd effects. Or even going back to um, those wonderful books of, uh, oh, God, my, I'm getting old. Um, Oliver Sacks, you know, which is a different, you know, where he liked, liked to write about all these weird, 
you know, psychological or physical diseases that human beings can have, you know, total outliers. But they're, they're of course, very interesting. But let's face it, what you also want to know, in fact, you want to know much more, is what are they outliers from? So we were saying, I'm interested in outliers, but what are the what are they outlying from? And that's what I'm interested in. You have that same form in Jewish law, by the way, uh, the claw being the rule and the prot being the exception. You often, like, for example, in the Mishnah, um, you, you're given a law with the exception, and the exception is there to teach you the principle. They don't say what the principle is. They just say, these people need to do this, but those people don't. And then you're like, why? <laughs> um, well, that's the nature of religion, of course, unfortunately. <laughs> drives some of us nuts occasionally. Okay, so so companies follow the law of sublinear growth at some point, um, and cities don't. Um, do you think that a company could become a city? Are there historical examples, or what would it take? Let's say you're a company, you read this, you're like, well, I don't want to die. Uh, I guess the solution isn't be a better company, but rather don't be a company. That is succinctly, that is the answer. You know, I mean... Uh... So, first of all, before I try to address that, you have to ask, why would you want to survive as a company? I mean, most of us don't care. I mean, most of us shouldn't care. Can I, I, I could give you the glib answer, which I know would be a suicidal answer, but that would be to maximize shareholder value, obviously. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but that doesn't guarantee it. Longevity doesn't maximize. Doesn't, I think, I think if, you have, if you have a mission to yeah. make the world more beautiful or what have you, and yes, you want to acc accrue capital in order to do that, then perhaps you can structure yourself in such a way that you don't, um, that you don't get captured by the sort of stagnation of revenue generation. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's fundamental questions, you know, why, you know, why, why do you want to survive? And, um, individually, this is to do again with individual and the collective. And uh, does the collective want you to survive? And the answer to the first is usually, yes, I want to survive, just for, for, for at least two reasons. One is what you just said, because I think maybe I can maximize profits for myself and my shareholders. That might be, even though there's no guarantee of that, of course. Um, and secondly, just because, you know, I founded the company and, uh, you know, I just want it to go on forever. This is me. My, my ego is involved in it and so on. And that's often the case. I mean, I, I mean that's a major portion. That's of the phenomenology it. of it. But I think it would be quite funny if, let's say, like uh, the CEO of Apple said, well, Apple needs to live forever because the retirement of Americans and the GDP growth of the world depends upon it. Yes, but they, I'm not, I probably shouldn't reveal private conversations, but I've had conversations with people at that level that have, to all intents and purposes, said exactly that, and which horrifies me. And you realize, you know, you forget sometimes how, how big the delusions of grandeur are. I mean, some are justified to so to a lot, you know, to, you know, I mean, if you, if you, I'm not saying this is the case, but if you founded Google, you were justified in having some delusion of grandeur, but there are limits. Anyway, um, but the other thing is the collective. The collective 
you know, just like with us, it's probably it's much better for people for companies to die because uh, they become. I mean, that's one of the reasons they die is they become ossified. They become uh, they do grow and they very find it very hard to adapt. It's extremely difficult. It's more and more difficult to adapt. And um, you know, new young companies come along with new ideas. And that's what you want. That's what the collective wants, these new ideas to be bubbling up in the same way. There's good reasons, evolutionary reasons, why you and I are destined and in a certain sense have to die. Um, if you believe in the Darwinian process of natural selection, we, um, you know, so the new, new things, new ideas, new forms, new, um, so on, new species can evolve. Uh, but, that is an end of itself, you know. Um, so um, that's true of companies. I mean, I, I've I've often made I've made up the following story, you know. Um, IBM effectively went bankrupt. I mean, IBM was dominating the computer industry for a, a large period of time, and um, uh, you know they uh, they did become ossified, and as you well know, they. You know, they put all their money in big mainframes and so on and poo-pooed the idea of this marvelous laptop I have in front of me. And, um, you know, had they not done that, mo you know, you could imagine that Bill Gates and, uh, and Larry Page and Jeff Bezos would have ended up working for IBM. You'd never have heard of them. They wouldn't have done anything. But we needed those guys or people like them, they were presumably in the right place at the right time, to come up and take us in a whole new direction, you know, that wasn't going to happen under IBM. So, you know, that's sort of a little fairy tale of what, uh, why you need an IBM to sort of disappear from the market and leave space, leave a vacuum, if you like, or open up new niches for new ideas to at least be developed, whether they survive and revolutionize, who in the hell knows? But uh, so, and I think, uh, you know, that is sort of the process. So death is an integral part of life and, and it's to do with, partly to do with the collective. That reminds me of the Max Planck quote that science progresses one graveyard at a time. Yes. Um, it's interesting that um, to your distinction between the city and company, that Silicon Valley um, is a city, like meaning it's it's a place, it's a region, but it's referred to now almost as a meme. So you don't have to be in San Francisco. You could be in Miami or you could be in China. You could be in Sweden. And in a sense, you're an extension of Silicon Valley. Sure. So if you take I, that I, view. Yeah, no, no, by the way, I should have said when I was talking about the company, of course, the great thing about city, the reason cities survive is that... Um, they don't have that. I mean, they, you know, they're not, they're not top down. They're primarily bottom up. Of course, they have administrations and so on. But the the whole point of a great city is it allows all kinds of ideas to be continually bubbling up. I mean, you know, the the image of uh, going leaving the farm and going to New York, and after a you know short while feeling, gee whiz, I could really make it. I could for you know open this store. I could form this little company or I could, you know, put on this play, whatever. That's what the essence of a great city is and what cities do. 
And, you know, great cities allow crazy people. You know, I mean, what we, you know, it's, uh, it's, that's one of the great things because now they provide the crazier the people, the bigger the boundary, and therefore it opens it up for the rest of us. Companies do the opposite. They more become more and more conservative, more and more constrained, more and more unidimensional. Cities are continually opening up, becoming more and more multidimensional, and they survive and, and grow. So, you know, that's a sort of fundamental dynamic that differentiates the two of them. And they, of course, they, they have very different missions, needless to say. I'm thinking about the mourning for Jerusalem that we find in the Book of Lamentations and just um, the ancient genre of mourning the loss of a city almost as the stand-in for mourning the loss of a civilization. What have you found from studying the death um, and destruction of cities in terms of what is lost and what survives? Because like, there's been returns to Jerusalem and also the concept of Jerusalem lives on in the prayer book, so it seems quite resilient. Um, but I don't know if you can extrapolate much from that. Yes, I have to say, I've not studied, and my immediate colleagues might collaborate, we've not studied the, um, so to speak, the, the, the life cycle of cities that have disappeared, of which there are very few, actually. I mean, more so is what you just said about Jerusalem. I mean, my God, Look what, I mean, my God, I shouldn't, but look what it's been through. I mean, it's it's extraordinary and still going through, and it persists. I mean, cities are like, I mean, especially in that part of the, of the world, are, you know, thousands of years old. But cities can, you know, look, the example I often give is um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We dropped atom bombs on them, and 25 years later, they're sort of thriving cities again. Uh, that's pretty amazing when you look at those pictures, those horrible pictures of uh, post the dropping of the bomb, um, and you think, my God, that's it. But they're back uh, very hard. But, you know, a small wiggle in the stock market, and you lost TWA, and you lose Sears Roebuck, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take very much to kill a company. They're incredibly fragile. Going back to, by the way, to Nassim's, Agility and so forth. They, I don't think he discusses those, but um, you know they are. Ext- I mean, companies are extremely fragile. I mean, you know, um, we live at a time when you think it's impossible to imagine there won't be a Google. I mean, my great great grandchildren will be talking about Google, but most likely, very very likely. It will be for, by then it'll be forgotten. Are Harvard, Princeton, and Yale more like cities or more like companies? Uh, they're diff- both. They're in between. <laughs> We've done um, universities, also colleges, also scale. By the way, <laughs> but they scale. They scale as a group. And we did some analysis a couple of years ago. Maybe it was just before COVID. Um, there were about. I don't know, 6,500 colleges and universities in the United States of various types. Um, And we looked at all of them because there's obviously data on them. And in their various metrics, they scale, meaning if you plot them versus either, usually we plot them versus number of students, but you could use another metric. Um, 
but you, you plot all the various things, everything from faculty salaries to, um, you know, number of faculty to the number of departments to um, salary uh, in mid-career of their graduates, you know, all kind, I mean, everything you could get your hands on and they scale. But what is interesting and not surprising. <laughs> number, of, number of BS degrees. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> Majors. <laughs> all of the above. But one of the things that's interesting is that we also deconstructed them in a standard way into, I think there's seven categories, um, beginning at the uh, one end is the uh, kind of community college. And at the other end is uh, what I guess are called R1 unit. Well, private R1, meaning research, private universities, the Harvard, Princeton's and so forth um, at the other end. And, um, it was quite revealing to see how different metrics scale, reflecting sort of what's at the heart of your question. What is it that these systems are trying to optimize? You know, I mean, that is, and it's sort of obvious in a way, but you can see it in this. That is, Harvard is trying to optimize research and prestige in some, you know, by some metric. Community colleges are trying to optimize, um, you know, the number of graduates per cost, per dollar, for example. You know, they're doing a wonderful community service. And uh, you see this in the way things like the cost of uh, the, 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 the salaries of faculty and so on, how they change as community colleges grow. Faculty salaries, typically the total faculty salaries decrease. Whereas Harvard, <laughs> the bigger, the more research it does, the bigger the salaries and so on. So, and some of these get, are things that happen in cities and some of these things happen in companies. So they're, they're neither fish nor fowl, they're in between, they have their own dynamic. And of course, the, these, the, the, one of the reasons for divvying them up is of course, A, because they, you know, a community college is different than a private fancy research university. In, in its mission, its fundamental mission, even though they're both trying to educate people. Um, uh, but um, also the way they're supported is quite different. So their kind of financial structure and basis is very different. And um, so that you have to sort of take into account. So it's sort of neither one nor the other. And it's been quite interesting. Uh, and by the way, one of the things that uh, we did both with cities, but we did more so with universities, going back to your question about uh, Nassim Taleb and his interest in outliers, um, we took um, the, you know, the baseline for the universities being the scaling curve, and then took each individual university and asked on each metric, are they over or underperforming? Or for cities, the same thing, you take the scaling curve and ask, are they over or underperforming? So if you take uh, New York, is it, it, does it have, so to speak, the right number of police for a city of that size? Or does it have the right number of crimes, to put it in some perverse way? Does it have the right number of AIDS cases? And if so, if it's over, if it has more than you would expect, why? You can ask. That's the, that gives you the point of departure for a case study of an individual city and an individual metric.
a lot of um, cities began as university towns, I believe, or at least like if we go back to the medieval period and you think about what were the prestigious places to go, like Oxford and Paris, like research wasn't a nice to have. In some sense, it was like the the magnet for talent. But now, um, especially with work remote um, and perhaps just a decoupling of college from prestige um, due to the global economy and just the nature of work in general, it doesn't seem like universities must be clusters for talent. It seems like you might have talent choose any place and then create a meme of itself um, where like attracts like, regardless of what the, you know, it could be nature that attracts people, for example, rather than a university. So I wonder what that will do to the resilience of colleges and college towns. Like nobody could imagine Lehman collapsing. And I feel that way kind of about Princeton. I know like the profit motive is different, but I wonder like what would have to be true for sort of one of the big research universities to go under. Yeah, no, that's a very, again, interesting question. I mean, I must say, I, I meant to add that what you just said about Lehman going bust. I mean, it's the same thing that, you know, as I said, when I, you know, in earlier years, the idea that there wouldn't be a TWA or a Sears seemed absolutely insane. As I say, you feel that about Google now. <clears throat> um, so, or Microsoft, for example. So is that true of universities? I'm not so sure. I have a, I think that the, 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 the sort of fundamental dynamic of what a university is and the way it is supported financially um, may build in enough resilience that um, they will persist in some form or another. Um, now, the, the secondary question or what you made in the first question is whether they become or they remain the hubs of talent um, remains to be seen. I mean, it's again, that, that's a question where it's hard to see why they wouldn't, but they may not. I mean, after all, um, you could argue that some of the best talent now is, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley in that generalized sense, not necessarily the physical place, but in that whole sector. Um, on the other hand, you could have argued in the 1950s, 60s, even the early 70s, the great talent was in the aerospace industry because that was attracting all kinds of... So I, I just don't know. I think this is a big open question and a very interesting one. But what it does raise, which I think is a, a, a really fascinating question, is the future of universities in general. You know, I mean, uh, they are pretty ossified institutions, actually. Um, and one of the things that has changed, I would say, in the years I've been associated with them, is that um, they become super corporate now. Not that they weren't corporate, you know, 50 or 100 years ago to some degree. Obviously, they have to be. Um, but they now act like corporations. They move more towards corporations in the way they behave, their, um, you know, their whole sort of way of raising money. Um, they, they, you know, you, you feel that the thing that is... The thing that drives administrations more than anything else is not sort of scholarship and intellectual prowess. It's more how much money can you bring in 
you know, how many grind, you know, that kind of platitude. It's not, it's, um, it used to be when I came on board, they used to say publish or perish was the phrase then, of course. Now I think it's um, publish or perish, but it's more publish or bring in the money. Or, you know, you're not, it's bring in the money is the more dominant over publish. I don't know how to say it exactly, but, but it's more, you know, how much money can you bring in dominates almost everything now. And, um, and that's why, you know, if you look at the major universities, the humanities, you know, the English departments and the philosophy departments and the classic departments, you know, remain very secondary. Whereas I have to say when I was an undergraduate, even a graduate student, they were still major departments in the university. And now they're- I think it raises, I think that raises the question though of why they're not bringing in the money. Like I would, I would suggest that in the sixties, English could bring in the money for various reasons. And it can't now because that reflects our general values, but also our, I think, the earned the earned perception of the humanities is being low ROI and unrigorous. Um, not not to say there isn't profound wisdom in the humanities, but I think the disemphasis on selling and the overemphasis on research for its own sake has kind of alienated the customer. So I don't really know what to do about that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a bit of a crisis. But anyway, it brings up, nevertheless, all these questions about the future of the university, I think are really important, not just for universities, but obviously for society. I mean, the whole question, even the structure of universities, I mean, why would, you know, this, the hegemony of departments, and not even departments, hegemony of sub-departments. I mean, you, 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 I use the word physics department, but in fact, it's really five semi-autonomous sub-departments that uh, barely talk to one another. So this is one of the things that intrigued me greatly about your book. I just had on David Epstein a couple weeks ago, um, wrote a book on generalism, but the interdisciplinarity and the sort of, as you mentioned before, the search for a kind of unity of knowledge across examples. I find that so beautiful and moving, but the kind of scope of that work and the ambition of it seems to be against the grain in your typical research institution where you have to specialize and kind of keep to your field and your lane and your expertise. So perhaps this is just a generational thing of like you got in early, but what advice do you have to young up and coming like thinkers, be they in the academy or not for sort of maintaining or pursuing an interdisciplinary approach to a question? Yeah, that's a tough question because, um, I mean, one of the curious things that's happened in the last 10, 20 years maybe is that, so when I, I, I was, um, you know, I was doing what you might call conventional physics for most of my career or first 30 years of my career, you know, quarks and gluons and string theory, dark matter, all these wonderful things, I mean, marvelous things, which, uh, but but I, and then uh, by accident, almost and surreptitiously, I uh, or serendipitously maybe, I moved into uh, these questions, big questions in biology, and um, I found those so exciting and um, uh, so um, I know 
insightful. I mean, and, and this whole question of the unification, which is part of physics, but sort of see that that unfolding in biology in a field I knew very little about was just uh, just a wonderful experience. Um, and so gradually and sort of almost unconsciously, I changed fields. And then I was extremely fortunate that um, I was, uh, you know, near the Santa Fe Institute and I became part of the Santa Fe Institute because that's why the Santa Fe Institute is there, is to exactly combat um, these forces that uh, completely dominate the academic landscape. And it was remarkably set up by, um, you know, these extraordinary people who were, you know, Nobel Prize winners who had, who, you know, had that vision themselves, but also recognized the big problems that were, that not just young people faced, but ironically they faced. You know, it's kind of weird to have a Nobel Prize to be considered one of the great physicists of the 20th century. And, um, you know, your colleagues think you're wasting your time if you think about something outside of physics, you know, that you're now an old fart and not really, you know, you're losing it because you're, you know, you're only interested in physics. I mean, that's, I'm, you know, and you get as much funding as you want as well. It's not like there was a funding issue, but, you know, you're just not being, you don't feel you're being supported psychologically. And I think those people in some form or another formed this place, the Santa Fe Institute, and it's been remarkably successful, but it is a haven for people who want to think or have delusions of grandeur that they can think in bigger terms <laughs> want to buck the system, so to speak, because the system has evolved to be more and more um, microscopic in, uh, in terms of what you work on. I mean, you, you have to make a name in one specific thing, in one specific area, before you can, you know, even broaden out from that into something else. Um, so that, you know, by the time you've done it, it's sort of a Faustian bargain. It's a bit late and so on. Now, I was just very lucky. I mean, I have to admit, I mean, I don't, I don't ascribe it to my own great foresight and brilliance of, uh, you know, insight into what's going on. I was also lucky, by the way, and this is quite a, kind of remarkable. I happened to be at Los Alamos. You know, I'd moved from Stanford to um, Los Alamos um, to, for, to do former new high-energy physics a long, long time ago. And I only intended to go for two or three years and for various reasons sort of stayed forever. It was, uh, remarkably... A national lab allows greater freedom of thought in that sense than a university, which is bizarre, exactly the opposite to what you would think. So I already had that. And indeed, many of the people that formed the Santa Fe Institute at the very beginning were sort of offshoots from Los Alamos, which is kind of strange in a way. But anyway, uh, so, um, so first thing I would say to a young person is, Keep the faith kind of thing. Don't lose heart because the system will try to beat the shit out of you, so to speak, in terms of, you know, wanting to think about other things other than what you're supposed to be writing your thesis on or writing two or three papers for science and nature during your postdoc or for phys physical review letters or whatever. Do those if you need to. But And in fact, I would also argue, and I disagree with some of my colleagues, 
I think having a grounding in a discipline is actually the best way to begin. Do that, but don't lose the faith and then branch out. So we get, that's a segue to saying that SFI, we get some extraordinary postdoctoral fellows because they're people that either consciously or unconsciously have done what I just said um, and want to do, you know, broaden out in some way. Now, it may be just a little way from what they've done, and some completely change, because the whole culture and atmosphere of the Institute is one of total freedom. You can do what you like and of interdisciplinarity. We're all together. You know, we it's a small place. We interact together. Yesterday afternoon, I spent the first part, I spent, let's see, I talked to... Um, biological physicist, which is sort of close to me, who I collaborate with. I talked to a management scientist, sort of do with the companies, but it's very different than physics, and then to an anthropologist. So I spent, that's pretty, pretty interesting, and it's pretty exciting, and so on, and you work with those people. So, if you, so you could do that. Now, in a university, it's much harder. And the irony is, that I would say, and um, this is a cartoon version, every president of every major university, especially when they come on board, they say, ah, we want to really emphasize interdisciplinarity and break down the barriers between the disciplines and the departments. And, uh, you know, and they even say we want to do address some of the complexity in the planet and all the rest of this stuff. And all the department heads and all the people in the departments giggle, pat him or her on the head and go on doing what they're doing. But it's kind of ironic that the federal agencies and, and the leaders of universities are always propounding that we should be doing more transdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity, cross-disciplinarity, complex adaptive systems and the rest, and not much changes. It has changed. I shouldn't be so... I wonder if the more we scale, whether you want to think about it ideationally or de uh, demographically, that the more loneliness and siloing we create as well, the sort of the cohesion and sense of we're all in this together and cross-team collaboration, trust, all of those things, you often find them in more atomic units, but as like individualism um, it is, is almost a a correlate of specialization and focusing on your department and so on. So in that sense, um, you guys are quite contrarian. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. And it's, I mean, you know, pockets like, I mean, we've inspired places across the globe to sort of follow suit. Um, none are quite like us, of course, it's hard to do. Um, and some, and many, univer I mean, as I say, I'm being, you know, I was a bit, a bit strong about universities, but many universities, you know, try to make a good faith effort to encourage that. But the trouble is when push comes to shove and it's time for promotion, tenure and appointments, all the canonical metrics that would have been used 50 years ago are still will be used. So, you know, you know, it's, uh, that's the issue. In the end, it's the reward system. It goes to, you know, what we were almost saying at the beginning. It's, it's, uh, but it's the reward system. If the, unless the reward system changes in some form, 
I think it's going to be hard for this for young people who have this desire to think in bigger terms and so forth, cross party lines, so to speak. It's going to be hard for them to do it. Many do it, of course, but it's hard. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time and wisdom and for all the work that you've done and continue to do. Well, pleasure. You know, Zoha, I didn't find out about you. <laughs> Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.